boots off the ground, security in transition from the Middle East and beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots off the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems, and cyber weapons. My name is Amim Lutfi, and I will be the co-host for the series along with my colleague, Alexander Arduino. Alex. Thank you, Amim. We are very glad to have with us today, Mr. Raffaello Pantucci. Mr. Pantucci is a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Service Institute for Defense and Security Study. And now he's a Visiting Senior Fellow at Nayan Technology University here in Singapore at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies. He has written extensively on terrorism and counterterrorism, as well as China relation with his Western neighbors. Raffaello, you wrote a very well-received book from the public and academia. We love death as you love life, Britain's suburban terrorist. Thank you for being with us today, and we are really looking forward to getting deeper in your book and your insight on the matter. Well, yeah. Thank you again for joining us today, Raffaello. Uh, to kickstart a conversation, I want to ask you a question about terminology that's always been in the back of my mind. And the question is about, we often use this term, uh, jihadi or radical extremist as, uh, as a catch-all category for a certain group of people. Now, in my mind, at times when we use this category, we clump together very different actors into one thing. So a veteran going from Chechnya to Afghanistan to Syria would be a jihadi, right? But so would a suburban Muslim from England that you talk about in your book. Similarly, uh, let's say a teenager graduating from a madrasa in a village in Balochistan who sees joining a military organization as his only means of employment would be considered an Islamic extremist alongside a lone wolf character from, let's say, New York. So my question is, do you think we need to study these different kinds of actors who clearly come with very different motivations and are produced out of very different contexts? Do we need to study them under, uh, in their, on their own terms? Or is there value in bringing them together under a shared category of jihadi, Islamic extremists, or whatever that category is? Is there value in bringing them together as one thing? Well, thank you uh, for the question, and thank you again, both uh, Andrea Miyai, for the invitation to come and talk to you uh, today. Um, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting question, and you know, definitional questions are something that academics absolutely love. You know. Uh, Many, many hours of conferences and meetings and books have been, you know, used with defining issues in some way. I mean, the way I would look at it is I would say, you know, the term jihadi or violent Islamist extremist um, is really one that provides a kind of a useful uh, catch-all uh, for that broad basket of people that you defined or that you mentioned. Uh, because the one thing that runs through all of these individuals um, or the particular ones that you identified is that they all self-identify themselves as being part of a movement that the rest of us would look at as a kind of violent jihadist uh, or Salafi jihadist or whatever sort of term you prefer um, sort of group. I think where the confusion maybe comes in these days is that if we look at some of the individual cases, it's very clear that they are worlds apart from each other. So for example, we look at the case of Omar Mateen, um, in Orlando, who, you know, appears to be a very troubled young uh, Afghan man who went on a shooting rampage in a gay nightclub. And there's been all sorts of speculation about exactly what motivated him. Uh, in talking about his attack, he described, you know, himself as pledging allegiance to both Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda, <laughs> groups that are, you know, opposed to each other. So, you know, you're looking at individual there who's clearly quite confused and understanding exactly what his motivation was is quite difficult in itself. But then even harder when held up against, you know, as you point out, some, you know, uh, motivated individual who goes off to fight in Syria against the Assad regime. Um, but I think what drives them all together is they all clearly self-identify as being members of this particular ideology. So I think from a sort of a, a discursive perspective, it is useful to at least use this term in particular because then this term 
helps define them as against maybe an extreme right-wing terrorist or uh, a sort of one of these new groups, that, these new movements we've seen emerge like involuntary celibates. You know, so in those cases, you've got attacks, terrorist attacks happening that look a lot like some of the violent Islamist attacks, but the kind of underlying ideology that's motivating the individual is clearly different. So I think that's why these terms are useful in terms of putting these people broadly in a basket of where they self-identify in terms of the attack, the reasons or the ideology that they're connecting their attack to. Raffaello, uh, just to follow up on that, uh, as you know, our podcast, uh, uh, it's focused on private military, mercenary, private security companies. Uh, as Amin mentioned, the first type of jihad, seasoned fighter looking for a job, to me sound very similar to mercenaries. Is that a fair assessment in your opinion? And uh, do you think that in the near future, we might see more organized Islamist private military companies, uh, something like it's already spun out, uh, like Malhama Tactical Group? So I, I actually would, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'd agree with the, um, uh, the similarity in a way, uh, because I think that if we think about, you know, people who are mercenaries, uh, working for private military companies that we talk about today, you know, these people are motivated purely by money, you know, and it goes back to the sort of mercenaries that we saw, you know, rampaging around Europe in medieval times. We had sort of armies of Swiss guards who were hired by whoever showed up with the biggest paycheck and they would just sort of be motivated to go with them. And you still see people like this on battlefields. But I think when we're talking about people who are, you know, what we might call terrorists or jihadis or Salafi jihadis, you're talking about people who are motivated by an ideology. And it's the ideology which is driving them to be involved in this activity rather than uh, purely the paycheck. Now, I think where maybe this line starts to get a little uh, confused is in cases like Muhammad Tactical. But I would actually argue that I'm not sure that Muhammad Tactical diverges from a trend that we've seen before in uh, sort of jihadist activity, whereby you do have militant groups, and we saw this a lot in Afghanistan, We've seen it in Pakistan as well, and I think we've seen it before that even in Yemen and other places, where essentially these militant groups run camps that people can come to and people can train at. Um, or people, or in the case of Malhamma Tactical, will fight on the battlefield and provide training for people on the battlefield. Because I think while there is an element of payment happening here, and you know, in some cases, uh, you know, the individuals who are going to take this training aren't actually that you know, motivated and you know, certainly if we go back and look at some of the people who were drawn to Afghanistan, you know, there's a whole sort of phenomenon of jihadi tourism, right? Where you had these sort of, you know, young men uh, who were basically looking to have a sort of exciting adventure at a training camp with some mates, you know, and then they would go there and then, you know, they pay their fees to go to the camp and then they sort of go home and they say, oh, I went to jihad. They didn't actually go to jihad. They went to, you know, a jihadi training camp in, in Afghanistan or something, you know, but they didn't necessarily actually ever really go to fight against the Taliban. So, you know, that kind of phenomenon, those individuals, you know, still their motivation was really about, you know, thinking that they were linking up with the ideology. And I think even if you look at some of the sort of um, groups like Mahama Tactical, it's a very good example of this, you know, in some of the work that I know you've done on this subject, you know, the group is always fighting or training people who are of a certain ideology and mindset. You know, they may be taking payment to do this training, but it's kind of a subsistence payment. It's not a profit payment. It's not like they're generating vast income here that you know, is then going back to Swiss bank accounts and making people very rich. They're doing it to ultimately help enable themselves to train more people, to generate more income, to be able to continue the fight ultimately in Muhammad Tactical's case against the Assad regime or against the people they perceive as apostates. So I'm not sure that it's exactly the same as for example, the PMCs that you'd see you know, uh, Eric Prince running, where you are dealing with very much more a private enterprise, which is essentially, you know, trying to turn war into a for-profit operation. So I think there's a distinction to be drawn between those two. Yeah, if I could uh, just like, continue this conversation going, um, one of the questions that comes to my mind is, even when I think of uh, some of these other private military companies, you would have examples of, um, a, you know, a, a large portion of the people who join them have uh, certain uh, white nationalist ideologies, right? So would you say that having those kind of ideologies, 
and and there's considered some some data to back this up as well. Um, would, that, but would you say like uh, those kind of ideologies, or even let's say, uh, if you have a humanitarianism as an ideological outlook on the world, or liberalism as an outlook on the world, that does not sort of take away from the the fact that you're um, at the basis sort of a paid soldier. So would you say that that there's something particularly different about these as Islamic or sort of Islamic ideology? Uh, uh, to uh, that that makes them sort of set apart from the other groups of mercenaries that we were talking about earlier. Well, yes, but I mean, I think any uh, you know, I, I think any group uh, that is you know providing some sort of training or providing an opportunity for people to come and fight alongside them for money, um, but ultimately is motivated by the ideology rather than money. Um, I think it's a terrorist group, and or can be a terrorist group, and it's a different kind of entity to a you know, private security company, which is you know, winning contracts from the Department of Defense in the United States or whichever other government, and is being motivated to conduct its military activity solely uh, in advance of that sort of nation state. I think the point is that when we're thinking about these kind of, you know, uh, this kind of privatization of jihad or privatization of militancy, it is slightly different because there is still a kind of an ideological thread that will tie these people together. You know, if you go back to the 70s or, you know, for example, there's an interesting uh, phenomenon where you used to happen with, you know, groups like the Bader-Meinhof group or the many leftists that were running around Europe at the time would go and train in Yemen, you know, and would go and train alongside uh, Yemeni, you know, left-leaning groups, but were also kind of more motivated by the sort of conflict that was happening in the country, who were also providing training for people like, you know, um, uh, you know, Carlos the Jackal and his groups, and were also providing for, you know, Palestinian uh, fighters at the time. And so you ended up having a kind of agglomeration of people who were all broadly speaking of a kind of anti-establishmentarian bent. And we're all broadly speaking kind of leftist-ish. Uh, but, you know, in some cases, these people were paying fees to be at the camps to go then and ultimately continue their struggles back home. Now, what's interesting about it, of course, is that, you know, this kind of model, uh, which ultimately for the kind of host provides an income stream, um, it, it does still require everyone to be broadly pushing in the same direction. But it then does also throw out some interesting connections and links, um, which is, again, very similar to what we've seen happen off uh, jihadist battlefields or any foreign fighter battlefield where you've got sort of lots of these foreign fighters going to mobilize together. Is that, you know, by being there together, you kind of create all sorts of connections. And ultimately, it throws up attacks later, um, which kind of throw, go in different directions. So, you know, the, the, the Palestinian cause and um, the sort of cause of the leftists in Europe became very close. And we saw all sorts of attacks happening where they were kind of feeding off each other or supporting each other. And in part, I suspect that was a fact, that was a result of the fact that they'd all trained together and got to know each other at these camps um, that were being run. So, you know, all of that has a kind of ideological underpinning to it, which again is very different to what we're seeing with, as I say, private security companies that are doing this for a purely, you know, commercial enterprise. Rafael, uh, if I could ask a question about uh, another area of expertise of you linking uh, Middle East, uh, Central Asia, and China. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about China's approach to combating terror, both at home and on their asset and personnel abroad? Uh, is China simply mimicking Europe and US in this fight against terror, or do you see it them doing something differently. And by doing something differently, I especially look at the role of uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, and the menace of terrorism to Central Asia. Thank you. Uh, uh, a question that, as you know well, is one very close to my interest. Um, I think, so I'll start with the SCO, because I think the SCO is, is kind of a good example in some ways of um, of China's external kind of instrumentalization in some ways of terrorism as a narrative uh, to create a kind of mobilizing structure to, uh, you know, bring people together. And if we think about the SCO, the interesting thing about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is that, you know, from the beginning of its creation in 2001, you know, before that it was the Shanghai Five, which is an organization that was really about defining China's borders with what was the, form, what was the Soviet Union, um, you know, the one thing that kind of we see them all gathering around at that time is the idea of counterterrorism. And, you know, when they 
emerge as an entity uh, in Uzbekistan, joins the initial Shanghai Five of Russia, China, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan in 2001, you know, the first thing that they do is create something called the Regional Anti-Terrorism Structure, uh, which is housed in Tashkent and is intended to be a kind of an entity for them all to together think about countering terrorism in the region. Um, it has, of course, got a very unfortunate acronym of RATS, uh, which is a Russian diplomat once said to me is, you know, this is the problem when there's no native English speakers in the room. Um, but the key thing about it is that terrorism becomes an issue that all of the parties who are joining the SEO in the first place could kind of agree on. These are all ultimately authoritarian states, uh, you know, one-party states who believe that any sort of threat or group that is kind of against the state is in some ways by definition a terrorist. Uh, because by being against the state, you're anti-establishment, therefore you're trying to overturn the political order, therefore you're a political adversary, so therefore you are a terrorist. Um, and they all kind of agree on that. Um, and they have all, by the way, suffered problems of uh, terrorism in some shape or form uh, over time. So it becomes a very easy thing for the entire group of countries to get together on and agree on. They all agree kind of what a terrorist looks like, and they all agree that terrorism is a problem. So terrorism becomes kind of the useful flag that they can all gather around. Now, what's fascinating to me is the SEO in practical terms, I don't think has done a huge amount in counterterrorism in its history, really. They do these sorts of big training exercises that they call counterterrorism exercises, but to the rest of us look really like military exercises. Um, and military exercises that tend to be focused on goals that for the rest of us wouldn't really be counterterrorism goals. Um, you know, it's about worrying about invading islands uh, that are sort of, you know, causing you problems. It's about sort of mobilizing to, you know, close down a village which has gone rebellious. It's about using aircraft to sort of sweep across vast pieces of territory. This is not counterterrorism activity that I think the rest of us would conceptualize. When, you know, when, when we think of counterterrorism activity, it's really about dealing with small cells that are launching attacks in civilian targets, mostly within our countries, mobilizing people who are already within our countries, which, you know, is a different kind of uh, conception. It's much more police-driven enterprise. Um, but, you know, I think from Beijing's perspective, and I think from the other members of the SCO's perspective, it's actually really a much sort of more fundamental thing. And to deal with it, it requires a much more kind of fundamental um, and large-scale uh, response, because you're dealing with something that is fundamentally a threat to the state in a very existential way, and therefore has to be really squashed. And I think this also, by the way, brings me on to the, the second point to talk more broadly about China and its response, where I think we do have to separate out its response at home versus response abroad. Um, and I think in terms of the response at home, we've seen an approach which, you know, is in many ways unsurprising and an extension of what one would probably expect China to do to deal with such a problem, which is a kind of a, a fundamental push to really change a vast chunk of our society or you know, change a vast chunk of China's society and to change it in terms of really redefining how it thinks of itself. You know, because from China's perspective, they have a problem of terrorism within the country, which is mostly circled around a Uyghur community who live, for the most part, in Xinjiang, sort of China's, you know, largest, um, you know, province, counts for six of the country's landmass, but it is vast and empty. Um, it has this population of about 10 million Uyghur Muslims who live mostly over on this sort of southern corridor, but actually kind of scattered around the, the entire region. Um, and these people have got a very strong sense of ethnic identity that's very different and apart from you know, Han China. Um, and this has led to a tension, and a tension that's articulated itself as militancy, and in some cases, terrorism. And from China's perspective, to get this population kind of back on side, it has required not only a kind of massive economic program to redevelop the region, to make these people all feel like they have a stake in society, but also a very heavy-handed security response. And beyond that now, there's really a push to try to get these people to rethink of how they think of themselves. So to really try to kind of, uh, you know, almost uh, change the Uyghur sense of identity so that it doesn't feel that it's a part, so that it feels that it's part of China. And to do this, they're doing this incredible program of re-education camps, as they call them, where essentially people are getting shoveled off um, to, you know, get re-indoctrinated into who they are or who they think they are. And this then becomes the kind of, you know, this is then the beginning of a path to really eradicate the ideas of um, uh, separatism and uh, you know, terrorism and extremism that may linger within them. And it's led to an incredible program of sort of cultural transformation um, and eradication in some ways, uh, which is you know, a, a very, very sad story to see. 
Um, but that's what they're doing internally. And of course, this kind of a program is one that you really can't export. Nor do I actually think China wants to export because it's not really something that they care about outside their borders. Outside their borders, counterterrorism is a much more practical enterprise that is really just about protecting your people. And then it comes into a very much more kind of practical approach. And the primary approach I think China likes to take with counterterrorism abroad is basically to get the locals to deal with it. <laughs> you know, and essentially they would like local partners in whichever country it is to basically protect their people, you know? Now, unfortunately, those local countries aren't always able to deliver this outcome. And we've seen repeatedly instances of China getting attacked. In Central Asia, we've had murders of diplomats going back a few years. Um, in, in mostly in Kyrgyzstan, we've had a bomb attempt, a bomb attack on their embassy in Bishkek. Um, look across to Pakistan, we've had a number of attacks against Chinese interests there, uh, both workers, but also uh, diplomatic enclaves. And there we can see that basically you're seeing a failure of the local authorities to protect. And in that case, you are seeing China start to mobilize private security companies and trying to get private security companies to try to protect their people. Interestingly, you've also seen a softer approach. Uh, which is basically to try to pay off locals in a way. And sometimes this is as mercenary as going out and paying, <laughs> finding out who's the local potentate I need to pay off, pay him off or hire his boys and make sure that provides your security and that kind of protects you. Um, but also about, you know, basically doing corporate social responsibility programs or things that they think are corporate social responsibility programs, sort of making sure that you build stuff in the local community so the local community doesn't feel as aggrieved that you're there and feels like they will protect your interests and your assets. And all of this kind of comes under broadly the rubric of protecting your assets and to some degree counterterrorism as well. Um, I also think the final thing I'll add is that there is an increase you can see in Chinese willingness to provide equipment and support for local security uh, officials. And I think this is something that's very interesting in, in Central Asia in particular, where you've seen a real push to try to help build up the local capacity. And it used to be the case that China would kind of just leave this to, uh, to the Russians, quite frankly. But increasingly, you can see they're investing a lot more in trying to build up the local security capability to protect their people and their assets, and also to help China have stronger connections to the security apparatuses in these countries. It's quite a long answer to a fairly brief question, and I apologize. But anyway, thank you. Yeah, that was a great response, and it, it sort of you know, gave us great insight into what's happening in China. Uh, Rafael, I want to ask, a question about, you know, since we're already on some of your scholarship, um, I was reading one of your articles in the Wall Street Journal, um, specifically the one in which you write, um, I think it was written uh, at the death of uh, ISIS leader Abu al-Baghdadi. And he made a very intriguing argument, basically saying that dismantling of organized terrorist groups might not bring the peace that we envision. To quote, um, you know, if I could quote directly from, from, from that article, you write, the West is moving into an age of isolated and even meaningless terrorism, an age when leaders contribute more conceptually than tactically. Before long, we may look back through rose-tinted glasses to the time when terrorism was made up of easily comprehensible networks and leaders, end quote. Now, can you elaborate a bit more on why you think that fall of structured terror group might be a dangerous proposition for all of us? I think, uh, thank you for the question. I think it's um, the sort of concept I was working towards is that, that if we look at the way uh, we see terrorism articulating itself um, increasingly, um, not uniformly, because I think the sort of classic terrorism still exists. We still have large groups that are eager to launch attacks um, and are, you know, uh, are keen to, uh, to do very much the same sorts of things that we've seen happen in the past. But I think what we're increasingly seeing is we're seeing individuals launching attacks. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, we've got people who are clearly identifying with an ideology, clearly feel part of that ideology, but they're launching an attack in advance of that ideology without any link to it. Um, but we've also, going beyond that, we've started to see the emergence of individuals who are kind of doing things that look like terrorist attacks, but it's really not clear the ideology that's behind it. Um, and it becomes very difficult to separate it from sort of acts of mass violence or public shootings. But because of the methodology that they've used to launch the attack, it kind of looks a bit like a terrorist attack to the rest of us. 
And it becomes very difficult to separate out what is just sort of an act of, um, you know, of, of mass violence against other human beings because of an individual's anger and, you know, a terrorist attack, which is launched from an individual or a group of individuals who are being directed and are trying to advance a very specific ideology. Um, you know, I think we have to remember that terrorists ultimately do kind of have a goal. And the goal is the message of whatever group they're trying to advance. They're trying to change something in society because they see there's an injustice. The world isn't paying attention to this injustice. They need to do something about it and wake us all up. And violence becomes a method through which they're kind of shaking us out of our stupor. Now, the problem is that, you know, if you're doing that and you're looking at it from a kind of structured terrorist organization, um, you know, you kind of may not agree with the ideology that underpins it, but you at least have a sense of an understanding of where it's coming from. You know, so we can look at a group like Al-Qaeda and we can say, you know, this idea of establishing this global caliphate, um, of kind of throwing out the West from the Middle East and cleaving, you know, creating a world in God's great image seems like a, a crazy idea in some ways to people sitting in the West, but at least it's an idea that's sort of vaguely coherent and has a kind of structure to it. And it gives us a sense of, okay, so this is the problem and the idea that we're dealing with. This is what we kind of need to counter. The problem is if we move into an age where you're looking at acts that look like acts that are conducted by these sorts of groups, but are in fact conducted by individuals who are doing it because they are, you know, maybe they've got issues in their own lives, maybe they're just angry at society, maybe something else altogether. Um, how do we respond to that? And the problem is that if we were to see, for example, a group of people to launch some sort of unstructured attack of this sort in advance of some crazy ideology that five of them have conducted, concocted together online, um, but, you know, it was an attack of such magnitude that we would look at it and go, oh, my God, what has just happened here? We must be dealing with some sort of attack, a terrorist attack in a structured way. We must respond to it in that kind of a way. And, um, you know, oftentimes it's the response to the attack that causes more damage than the attack itself. You know, um, and there's a real danger in that, in that, you know, we might misread what's actually going on. And so we're looking at instances where we see acts of mass violence that are so incomprehensible to us that seem to be motivated by ideologies that just don't make any sense. How are we going to react to them? How will that impact us as, as a society? You know, if you think back to the attack that Anders Bering Breivik did in 2010, where he detonated a bomb in downtown Oslo and then drove out to an island in Yatoya and murdered a bunch of kids who were at a sort of political uh, camp together, um, you know, the immediate reaction to that attack was kind of confused. And you saw initially people were saying, oh, this is a jihadist attack of some sort. Because on jihadist forums, you saw people praising this attack and saying, oh, you know, this is a, they, they didn't know either. You know, they thought this was potentially one of them. And so they were sort of shouting about it. Um, but it turned out, in fact, to be a lone individual who was instead advancing a very different ideology um, and advancing in a very, very bizarre way you know, which made sense to him. And he put a huge manifesto that sort of seemed to articulate this lunacy in a certain way. But it was, you know, very incomprehensible. But initially, the reaction was a different way. And it did create tensions within Europe, where there was a sense of another horrible Islamist attack. And this creates social tensions within our societies, where, you know, you have the minority community suddenly feels aggrieved. They feel, oh, my God, we have to protect ourselves from this. It all kind of feeds social tensions that ultimately cause ruptures within our society that are really quite damaging. And I think that's really the danger that I was trying to edge towards, is the fact that we look at some, some of the attacks that we might see happening in the future will come potentially from these kind of unstructured ideologies, but we won't know how to react to it. And our reaction might be such that it causes more damage in some ways than the attack itself, and it might be actually a complete red herring in terms of what the attack actually is. When the attack might actually be just individuals who are kind of mobilizing to do something together because they met on 4chan or Reddit or something um, and decided there that they needed to do something because, you know, they were angry at, you know, trees or something and decided the best way to do this was, you know, blow up five cities around the world. Um, but, you know, how are we going to know that initially? And how will we react to that? How will our governments react to that? How will society react to that? And the damage that can be done could be uh, really, really difficult. If you've got a structured group, you know, pushing an ideology, at least you kind of know where to start your reaction, where to at least aim in general. Uh, yeah, if, if just to um, follow up on this, I think this is a very, um, it's a very interesting idea and sort of it's a, at some levels a very um, 
difficult problem to deal with of unstructured um, violence. What in your approach or what in your uh, opinion uh, should be the approach to dealing with such groups? And I ask this question specifically because with uh, some of the organized groups, you could essentially treat them as guerrilla fighters, right? So you map out, you do intelligence network, you map out their organizational structures, and then you look at the material they're producing and so on. But these known fighters, one of the approaches that I've seen is very common with, with trying to get into the heads or trying to figure out these lone warrior kind of figures is to fill in the lack of structure in organizations through a more structured opinion about their ideological outlook. So people, so a lot of the academic scholarship, for example, and this kind of gets back to the ideology question that we were having earlier, discussion that we were having earlier. A lot of scholarship that I read uh, goes, sees one mention of, of let's say, Maududi or uh, you know, Ibn Wahhab, or even if you go earlier to Ibn Tahmiyyah, you see some mention of it. Uh, even if it's incoherent, even if it's in disjunctive, people go from that mention into this kind of, uh, the, the scholarship goes into this long uh, detour into mapping out the writings of that particular scholar. And always, uh, I always thought that at, at some level, we as academics uh, fall into this trap of uh, over-reliance on ideology and, uh, try and, and sort of inflating the value of studying these texts or that, that, that had been written. Specifically for, you know, as we talked earlier, that, uh, that when you talk to some of these known warrior figures, uh, the, the ideology is not always that clearly laid out, and they're always in one could be in contradiction with others. And the second being that uh, these writings have been there for a very long time, uh, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries. But this kind of modern terrorism that we're seeing is still a creation of, let's say, you know, post 90s uh, or so on. So. Uh, in your, I mean, in, in, to cut it short, do you think that it's still the studying the ideologies and studying the writings of these scholars is still the best way of approaching this problem? So, I mean, the problem of ideology is um, it's a very complicated one. So, I think I think the key thing to I would say is that you're not dealing with a situation of either or. I think the point is that they're all happening at the same time. So I think there is still a value in understanding the ideology because ultimately the ideology does become the golden thread, if you will, that ties a whole bunch of people together. Now, the degree to which they are kind of motivated by it to conduct the act or the degree to which they think they're motivated by it to conduct the act or degree to which they think they understand or are connected with the ideology to conduct the act is very different. So you do, you know, I, I mean, I always remember that when, you know, or I always think when I, when I used to look, when I looked at sort of British terrorist cells um, and looked at sort of how they'd sort of grown over the years, you know, it was interesting to watch that when I looked at the different groups and the cells in particular, so you look at organize, you know, you look at a little network of guys who are going to launch an attack, you would kind of find certain figures always present within the cell, you know, and you would always find a kind of, you know, charismatic guy. And this charismatic guy was the guy who was kind of getting all the others together. You always tended to find, and this might be more specific to kind of British or Western context, a convert. And the kind of zeal of the convert, you know, because he's newly discovered this, or she's newly discovered this, you know, she's really pushing the others forwards because, you know, they're proving themselves and the others will need to as well. You would also always find one who's kind of the ideologue of the group. And this was the guy who had actually read Mordudi or who'd actually read, you know, Wahab's books, or actually knew who Abdullah Azam was, or, you know, and actually read the books, or who'd read the Quran even, you know. And these people were kind of explaining to the others. And, you know, these kind of believers were always quite critical. Now, I don't say that they always got their interpretations correct. <laughs> you know, these are not necessarily ideologues who had any conception of understanding what they're talking about, but to the others they did. But it was always quite an important figure to have within the cell, because it did give them a sense of being part of this kind of ideological movement. So. The, I don't want to completely dis, you know, throw away the importance of ideology and understanding it because I think it does still play a role in terms of giving a background to the group and in terms of giving a kind of a sense of identity, if you will, to the organization. I always remember an anecdote from uh, Iraq that someone told me that was apparently at one point um, 
in a certain part of Iraq where the uh, Americans are dealing with the insurgents in a very active way, they realized that, you know, there was a couple of, uh, of local mullahs who were quite important because they were giving the kind of blessing to the fighters before they went to launch their attack. And actually what the Americans did was they started targeting those guys. And they noticed by targeting those guys, they did actually slow down the pace of attacks within that part of uh, the country at that certain moment in time. It didn't deal with it fully, but it did slow down. So, you know, I think there is a role for ideology. And so there is a role in trying to understand the ideology to understand how it kind of got to where it got. Um, there is also probably a role in terms of some of those people in then trying to persuade them to get away from the ideology or some of the others who think they've been motivated by the ideology to be able to explain, you know, to try to push them away from it. And having that kind of discourse with them can in some cases start to push them in a direction of maybe moving on from it, disengaging from it, or, you know, I think de-radicalization is very, very difficult, but I think at least getting them to disengage from the ideas is possible. And to do that, you have to have a pretty good understanding of what you're kind of fighting against. So I think that there is still a role for that within this, uh, within the sort of counterterrorism struggle. But when we're looking at some of these other people I'm talking about, where you're looking at people who've got a very kind of unstructured ideology, or I would argue don't really have an ideology, are probably more individuals who have another issue going on, who are kind of using the ideology as a kind of excuse to conduct a sort of act of mass violence. I think that's different. I think in those cases, um, you know, understanding the ideology, I do question the value of it sometimes. And in some cases, partially because I don't know that the ideology is necessarily a very useful one, it's almost an individual ideology, some micro ideology. <laughs> you know, it's basically one guy's thoughts. And in that case, I think we need to think more in kind of psychological terms. And we need to think more about, well, what's going on in this person's life that they feel that this is the only outlet of expression that they have, and how do we address that? And in that case, it is probably a different kind of form of engagement. But I think the difficulty is that we probably need to do all of these things at the same time, to some degree, and kind of fine tune which one is more relevant to deal with whichever case we're looking at um, in front of us. Raffaello, thank you. You just mentioned the broad picture of ranging from ideology, radicalization, uh, and quite important, the focus that you put uh, on the, the zeal of the convert. Uh, here in Singapore, there is a sense of palpable concern about radicalized locals returning to this region to continue their activities. In your opinion, how real is this threat? Uh, and what is the best way to deal with these returnees? I mean, the, the issue of, you know, foreign terrorist fighters, returnees, um, is a fascinating one because in a way it hasn't articulated itself as the problem that I think we all expected. Um, you know, I think as you think about the battlefield in Syria and Iraq, uh, that drew so many people in, we went very quickly from worrying about that to worrying about attacks coming home. And to some degree, that's understandable why. We look at the attacks we saw in Paris and Brussels, which are very clearly kind of individuals who were sent back to launch um, these atrocities. And we thought, oh my God, there's going to be lots of others like this. And we did see in Europe a huge volume of, well, not a huge volume, we saw a number of attacks of, from individuals who had been to the battlefield and then were kind of sent back or returned to, um, to launch attacks. But I think what's interesting is that outside that kind of cluster in Europe that we saw, the interesting thing in Europe is that we haven't seen that many actually emerge. And in fact, the foreign fighter problem is kind of the shoe that hasn't quite dropped. And from my understanding of what we've seen happen here in Southeast Asia is it's broadly quite similar. You know, there were lots of people who went off. Um, there are some who've come back. But we haven't seen kind of that many show up actually in terrorist attacks quite yet. And I think the question to ask is what kind of a timeline does this happen on? Um, and I think that is the key issue in some ways. I think, you know, we have... In the past, seen foreign terrorist fighter flows turn then into you know, terrorist problems in, in countries. And here in Southeast Asia, we had a number of you know, terrible attacks in kind of the post 9-11 period um, against you know, targets mostly in Indonesia, but also uh, uh, elsewhere. We had a large plot disrupted here in, in Singapore um, to attack a number of target, Western targets for the most part, um, you know, high commissions and embassies that were based here. Um, you know, and, and so you can understand where that preoccupation comes from. But I think it's the timeline that goes from people going off to conduct, be involved in sort of foreign terrorist, in, in, to go fight in a foreign terrorist battle, and then ultimately come home to launch an attack. And I'm not sure that we've totally understood what that timeline looks like yet. I think the other thing is to remember is that people who go off to go and become foreign terrorist fighters don't go to become foreign terrorist fighters because they want to come home to launch attacks. 
there might be some people amongst that group who ultimately want to get towards that goal. But really, their motivation is to go abroad and be involved in that activity abroad. And so I suspect what you'll see happen with a lot of these individuals is they will go look for the next battlefield. And I think that's why, for example, what we saw happen in Marawi was very interesting. Because in Marawi, you sort of saw an indigenous battlefield show up within Southeast Asia. And it became a lightning rod for lots of people to go to. And so I think that, in some ways, is where the bigger concern needs to lie at the moment. Of course, you need to worry about these people coming home to launch attacks, mobilizing other cells around them, coming back home with direction to do these sorts of attacks. Groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda seeing these networks of foreign fighters that are now back home as potential cells that they can use to launch attacks. But I think in some ways, the bigger concern has to be how, if another kind of Marawi was to emerge, where you had an area where a group was able to mobilize to launch a sort of large-scale attack, that then becomes a new jihadi battlefield that lots of others would be drawn to. And that could become a problem in itself because then it sort of multiplies the more volumes of fighters you have out here, create new networks, then ultimately creates a concatenation of events that can create cells um, back home in countries like Singapore. So I think the problem of foreign terrorist fighters, I think we tend to look at it maybe through too narrow a lens where we expect that there's sort of an immediate causal link of individual goes to foreign terrorist bat battlefield, joins up with group that has ideology, which includes an ideology to launch attacks back home, comes back home and immediately launches an attack. I'm not sure it always works like that um, because I don't think that's always the motivation of the individuals. And I also don't think it's as immediate a process as that, um, you know, in every, in, every, in every situation. And then I think finally you have to remember what the groups want. You know, and I think if we look at a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, to me, their motivations at the moment seem very focused on battlefields elsewhere. You know, Al-Qaeda is trying to rebuild its brand at the moment, and it's trying to rebuild its brand through reestablishing itself as a group that is a standard bearer for, you know, oppressed Muslims uh, in uh, parts of the Middle East. ISIS is trying to rebuild itself in much a similar way. All the kind of franchises and networks that they have around the world are trying to do that same narrative in the local context that they're operating. Um, they're not, you know, in terms of attacks in places where you don't have that kind of struggle going on, you know, I don't know how actively the core organization is telling people to launch attacks there. Um, you know, if people do, great. It looks good for the global organization, but I'm not sure how much resource they're deploying in that direction. And in some ways, that kind of resource deployment might be what we'd see through um, the foreign terrorist fighter uh, float. Uh, Raf, just to continue this discussion, uh, moving it slightly more westwards into UAE and Saudi Arabia, where they are concerned about the return of a different kind of foreign fighter, and you mentioned it in your last response, um, sort of the more seasoned uh, fighter from, uh, let's say, Syria or Yemen, who might have been fighting as a proxy for UAE and Saudi Arabia itself. Now, how should uh, these kind of, let's say, let's call them jihadi veterans, be integrated back into society once they return back home? And I asked this question because one of the things that I was reading recently is that when after the end of the Tofar rebellion in Oman in the 70s, the Omani government essentially offered the rebel soldiers um, the uh, retirement payout, basically, and they offered them to pay at the same rate as their own army soldiers. Do you think some solution like that, especially for the more organized veteran fighters, is a practical solution at all? I mean, the difficulty becomes, you know, how much do these individuals think that they were fighting for a proxy of their government? Um, or how much were they fighting for an organization that was in essence a proxy of their government because it's being manipulated by someone. Um, and I think there's a key distinction there because I think if you're an individual who's fighting for an organization uh, that was, you know, that you know was essentially a proxy group for uh, a government and you're doing it probably for a paycheck of some sort, then probably demobilizing in the way that you've described uh, could be quite effective because essentially you're motivated purely by you know, the sort of paycheck. If instead you're dealing with an individual who went to fight alongside a group that ultimately was being manipulated as a proxy 
but maybe the individual didn't think that that's why they were, you know, didn't think that that's what the group was and thought they were joining for different pure kind of ideological reasons, then the motivation is very different. So then what will be required to get that person demobilized will be different. Um, and a paycheck won't necessarily resolve that. It might give them a sense of kind of immediate, you know, re-engagement with society, but it won't necessarily deal with it. I mean, in some ways, the model you're, you're describing was, is very similar to the model of de-radicalization program that I think we saw the Saudis run for a very long time uh, for people who had gone off to fight in jihadist battlefields in Iraq or, um, or elsewhere, where essentially they, they created this program, which was talked about a great deal at the time. It's been talked about a little bit less now, where people will come back uh, you know, from these battlefields. Uh, they would kind of surrender to the government. They would say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I went off and did this. I did a very naughty thing. And the government would essentially give them a life. They would give them a job, a house, um, a wife in some cases, you know, and give them a whole structured life. And then also have a kind of imam engaging with them regularly to talk them through how, you know, the way that they'd interpreted the Quran was incorrect. And this was the correct interpretation. And this program was one that, you know, uh, worked up to a point, but it didn't totally deal with the problem. And we saw a number of very high profile recidivist cases where people who've been through this program ultimately went back towards violence. So that says to me that this approach doesn't always deal with people who are motivated uh, to some degree by, you know, ideology. And I think that's the key point is that, you know, different people have joined these groups for different reasons. The problem with de-radicalization or counter extremism, counter terrorism, countering violence is that there is no single answer, you know, the motivations for why people join these groups are as numerous as the amount of people who join these groups, quite frankly. You know? And so it's almost impossible to create a kind of silver bullet which will deal with the entire problem because the entire problem is as wide and diverse as you know, a human population, which is made up of a huge range of different kinds of personalities and people. And so you know, these programs, you know, they might work for some people, but they won't work for everybody. Um, and, you know, I think that is really uh, the key thing. And the other thing, of course, is different things are working in different places. So whereas a program might work in a specific country, in a specific context, um, it won't necessarily translate across the border in the neighboring country or even more in a faraway country. But I think the key thing is that there are lessons sometimes that are useful to learn across these. And I think that's where I think governments should be focusing when they're trying to understand what experiences are useful from these different programs. Um, because sometimes you can look at others and say, oh, well, that worked in that way, um, or it worked for a certain group of people. Maybe some of those lessons are useful for us. Um, and I think key, understanding what doesn't work, you can see from what other uh, programs have tried. Raffaello, thank you for all this very important uh, and informative insight. Now, to end this interview, uh, I want to ask a question that we plan on asking to all of our guests. What will the future of warfare, and in this case, counterterrorism, will look like in the coming 30 years? You already mentioned that there is no silver bullet, but if you try to look at the crystal ball and gazing at the crystal ball, what you are going to tell us in this 30 years time? Um, you know, 30 years is long enough that I theoretically might live long enough to remember it, which is of course always dangerous because then you make a prediction, then you're actually gonna see whether it's true or not, right? Henry Kissinger's great line on predictions was predict so far out that basically you're dead by the time it happens. So it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. And if you happen to be right, everyone will look back and say, oh my God, what a brilliant man. Um, but so my suggestion or my thought about where kind of I think terrorism will go uh, in uh, the future is I think that we're going to see an awful lot of what we've seen at the moment. But I think we need to think a little bit more uh, dynamically about what kind of micro ideologies might emerge that are able to use the kind of global interconnected world that we have to mobilize themselves in ways that will look terrifyingly like a large organization, but actually might be made up of a very small group of people. And I think that's an important thing to think about because I think if we think about the threshold of accessibility to some really quite dangerous technologies, which is getting lower and easier all the time, and the fact that we now live in a world where you can forge relationships online that feel uh, like real relationships, uh, relationships that people are treating as though they were in real life relationships and are acting in extreme ways in advance of, um, you know, 
and we think about some of the crazy ideas that are out there, you know, you see a kind of potential confluence coming down the line, which could lead to some sort of giant atrocity that will look like terrorism and will be terrorism, but will be terrorism that's ultimately really about five guys, you know, scattered around the world who got together on a chat forum or got together in some new app um, and made a decision to do something together. But it really was only those five guys. But to us, who are at the receiving end of the violence, it might be very confusing in the first instance. And if it's conducted in certain computation, permutation of events, it might lead to a response by governments that, in fact, makes the situation so much worse. And I think that is what I could see happening in the future. One of these, some sort of weird micro-ideology motivating a group of guys or girls scattered around the world to suddenly maybe all five launch some sort of bio-attack or some sort of chemical or nuclear attack in, you know, five cities randomly around the world um, and are able to sort of cause enough of a violent reaction, uh, you know, that it leads to governments in all these five countries going, oh my God, what's just happened to us? We must react in some way. The public outcry will be there for them to have to react in some way. And they just will kind of stumble and do something which will suddenly exacerbate, you know, local community tensions or social tensions which will ultimately cause a friction in the problem, which is kind of outsized and completely adjacent to the actual problem that they were facing. And so I wonder if these kinds of, this kind of problem is what we might start seeing in the future. I think the other thing is that we're very bad at predicting what ideology is gonna pop up next. Um, you know, and I think if we look at the extreme right wing, it was obvious in many ways now in retrospect that it was gonna merge in the way that it did, but we didn't really see that. We think about some of the, you know, some of the other ideologies that are out there which might suddenly articulate themselves in an extreme way. I think we're very bad at predicting where these are going to go with. And I think, you know, I think we would, the whole idea of what we're seeing now around involuntary celibates, you know, men who aren't able to find women and are therefore using mass violence as a way of expressing that anger. Um, that's crazy, isn't it? But it's becoming a kind of weird sub-movement that's developing online. Um, and I think that is where we're very bad at kind of predicting. And I think we should be surprised by some of the crazy sort of ideologies that might start to emerge um, in the future. Raf, thank you so very much for joining us today. I think you gave us some excellent food for thought on a group of people that we hadn't talked about on this podcast until now. And I'm sure all the listeners enjoyed it. Uh, please allow me in the end to thank um, the rest of Boots Off the Ground team at MEI, without whom this podcast could have never been possible. Namely, Eugene Lim, uh, Lim Bei Chen from the Events and Communication team, and the MEI Associate Director, Carl, Carl Stadion. Also, thanks to all the listeners. Keep sending us your comments and feedback. And uh, keep an eye out on the future podcast. We have a great guest lined up uh, from both the private military sector and also the UN committee working on trying to regulate them. That's all for us from now. Until next time, goodbye.